Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast. The podcast dedicated to serial killers. Who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 170. I am your Norwegian host, Samas Rosland Vyborg Thun. Tonight, I bring to you the ninth and final part in the Green River Killer Saga. In this episode, I will endeavor to summarize the Green River Killer's crimes, briefly talk a bit about Ridgeway himself, His uh, bio was covered in an earlier episode, his sentencing, and what his situation is as of 2022. Enjoy. As always, I want to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. Their names are Amy, Boo, Brenda, Cassandra, Christy, Cody, Colleen, Connor, Corbin, Craig, Sid, Emily, Fawn, James G, James H, James S. Jared, Jennifer, Johnny, Juliet, Caitlin, Kathy, Kevin, Christy, Kylie, Libby, Lisa, Lisbeth, Marilyn, Meow, Nick, Oakley, Operation Brownie Pockets, Reed, Richard, Russell, Sabina, Scortnia, Scott, Shauna, Sputnik, The Radio, Tim, Tony, Trent, Vanessa, and Val. You are the backbone of the Serial Killer Podcast, and without you, there would be no show. You have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club. 
and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. All TSK episodes will be available 100% ad-free to my TSK Producers Club on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate $15 a month, that's only $7.50 per episode, you are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. You know, you usually took it out on uh, uh, other things instead of hurting her. Uh, um, living things, killing, killing animals, killing animals. Um, I stabbed a kid one time. Stabbed a kid with a knife. Down by uh, Chinook, where I used to go to school, and um, boy was playing. I stabbed him in the side, and uh, didn't kill him. And um, I must have been about sixth grade, I think it was seventh grade. And I, I uh, that was at the same time I was you know, breaking out windows, throwing, throwing rocks at windows. That's what I took my aggression on. I couldn't take it on my mom. I had to take it on my animals. And I killed a lot of birds, but uh, one cat suffocated in a, a ice chest. shot uh, babies at uh, dogs to hurt them and um, threw, uh, well, threw rocks at my brother about that time. I think I was getting out of that, though. What you just heard, dear listener, was Gary Leon Ridgway confessing to his crimes and detailing the various cruelties he inflicted upon others, humans and animals alike, from a very early age. On the afternoon he was arrested, Gary Ridgway was just getting off work. He said little as the detectives put him into their car for the trip to jail, except to indicate a concern for his truck. When the detectives told him they would take care of it for him, Gary gave them the keys. Then the caravan of police vehicles drove to the King County Regional Justice Center in Kent, a large complex of jail cells and courtrooms 
that had not even existed decades before when the murders began. At the Justice Center, detectives told Gary about the evidence they had that pointed to the fact that he was the murderer. Specifically, the DNA material found with Carol Christensen and Marsha Chapman. Gary made no substantive response to this, but invoked his right to consult an attorney. One of the detectives gave him a telephone book, but Gary said he did not know anyone in the book. Eventually, a detective called the King County Office of Public Defense and asked them to provide an attorney. Although the detectives told Gary that once he had asked for a lawyer, they could not use any of his statements as evidence against him. Uh, that was not strictly true. Under a later interpretation of the law, anything that Gary now said could be used against him if Gary ever took the witness stand. It could also be used if it ever came time to fix the penalty, should he be convicted. Nonetheless, the detectives assured Gary that he had no worries about anything he might say, so they urged him on to just admit his guilt. Showing Gary photographs of various sites and victims, the detectives pressed him to claim responsibility for the murders. Gary resisted. But according to the detectives, finally said that he was not responsible for all of the murders. Elated, the detectives told themselves that they had finally cracked the case. They had believed almost from the outset that the same person had committed all of the crimes. Late that afternoon, a Friday, the director of the Office of Public Defense tried to reach someone at Associated Counsel for the Accused, one of four non-profit agencies that contracted with the county to provide criminal defense services for the indigent. Jim Crane eventually reached Todd Gruenhagen, the supervising felony attorney for ACA's downtown Seattle office. Crane told Gruenhagen that the police had arrested a suspect in the Green River murders who needed legal representation. Gruenhagen got moving. The first thing was to find out where Gary Ridgway, Crane apparently told Gruenhagen the suspect's name, was being held. No one on the police force seemed to know or was willing to say. At about that point, Gruenhagen heard that Sheriff Reichert was about to hold a press conference announcing the arrest. Gruenhagen and another ACA lawyer went to the courthouse to try to attend the press conference, but were denied access by the police. At length, however, they learned that Ridgeway was being held at the Regional Justice Center in Kent. Gruenhagen called the ACA supervisor in Kent, Greg Girard, and asked him to get over to the jail there. The objective was to get to Ridgeway before he made any self-incriminatory statements. Girard called Mark Prothero, a felony lawyer in the Kent ACA office, and asked him to go with him. Just after six that Friday night, Girard and Prothero arrived at the jail and met Ridgeway for the first time. They wanted to know everything that had happened since the arrest, Gary told them. 
At that point, the defense lawyers did not want to talk about the allegations against Gary, only whether some irregularity had taken place during the arrest. The lawyers were concerned about the apparent delay in getting Gary a lawyer, and in the continued questioning after Gary had asked to speak to a lawyer. Meanwhile, other detectives had contacted Gary's family, including his third wife, to let them know what had happened. Prothero later followed up with his own telephone call. Gary's family was in a state of emotional shock. The following week, after Ridgway had made an initial court appearance and had been denied any bail, King County Prosecutor Norm Malling gave his press conference ruling out any plea bargain on the death penalty. That same night, Seattle criminal defense lawyer Tony Savage, a 71-year-old veteran of the King County courts and something of a legend in legal circles, called Prothero to tell him that Ridgway's family had retained him for Gary's defense. But the following week, after making an initial assessment of the case against Ridgway, Savage had second thoughts about trying the case by himself. He called Prothero back, saying that he thought an effort should be made to declare Ridgway indigent so that the public defenders could be brought back into the case. Savage went to see Crane, and Crane agreed. A few days later, Savage, Prothero, and Gruenhagen met with Crane and explained that having an adequate defense for the man accused of being the Green River Killer was certain to require mammoth resources. Otherwise, should a conviction occur, it might later be overturned on the grounds of inadequate representation. Crane asked how much money the two lawyers thought it might take. Somewhere between two and three million dollars, Prothero told Crane. Crane blanched. That sort of money would require a special appropriation by the King County Council, and this in a year of economic downturn so severe that the county was thinking of closing parks to meet its budget. All four men knew that setting aside millions of dollars to pay for the defense of an accused serial killer while parks were being shut down was political poison. Over the next several months, by fits and starts, more money became available to the defense. The prosecution, too, had to borrow money from other activities to prepare the case against Ridgway. At least part of the problem was the way the case had been presented in court. While Ridgway had been formally charged with the murders of only four women, Carol Christensen, Marsha Chapman, Cynthia Hines, and Opal Mills, the language of the charges relied upon the remaining uncharged 45 murders as evidence of a pattern. To wit, being a serial killer and trying to get away with it. That meant all the information about all the crimes, all 49, had to be disclosed to the defense. By this point, after nearly 20 years, that was a massive amount of information, as much as a million pages of text, according to some estimates, although no one really knew for sure. 
This included reports on the disappearances of the 49 victims, on the discovery of their remains, on the various laboratory tests that had been made over the years, on all the suspects, thousands of them in fact, just about anything that might be considered remotely relevant to the case. There were nearly 16,000 still photographs alone, and hundreds of video and audio tapes. There were 22 separate archived boxes of reports of routine interviews conducted by officers in the field, which might hold some importance. Failure to disclose required information, even inadvertently, might be fatal to a court case, and no one wanted that. To avoid drowning both sides in the massive amount of paper, arrangements were made to transfer all the documents to optical disk, where they would be accessible to both sides by computer. Even that was arduous. A program had to be developed that permitted lawyers and investigators on both sides to sort and search the texts. Otherwise, countless hours would be wasted trying to find the right phrase. By the early summer of 2002, both the prosecution and the defense were well into their preparation for what promised to be the largest murder trial in American history. Even if Ridgway was charged with only four victims, the fates of the other 45 were certain to bear upon a jury's ultimate verdict. That meant a large amount of time had to be spent tracking down people from 20 years before. No easy task for either side. Now that they had their suspect, the burden was on the police, renamed the King County Sheriff's Department in the late 1990s, to develop the evidence they had so laboriously collected over the previous years. While they had significant circumstantial evidence, mostly numerous sightings of someone who might have been Ridgeway with as many as nine of the victims, the linchpin in proving that Ridgeway was the killer they had sought for so long was in forensic evidence, such as the semen found with Carol Christensen and Marsha Chapman. Shortly after Ridgeway's arrest, Sheriff Reichert reconstituted the Green River Task Force, diverting resources to the effort to develop hard physical evidence tying Ridgeway to as many of the murders as possible. That meant poring over all the old evidence inventories in search of some fragment of microscopic evidence that might show a known victim had been in contact with Ridgeway at some point in the past. All the detritus that had been collected from the many crime scenes was examined for this possibility, including all cigarette butts, in the hope that some trace of saliva on a butt might contain DNA that could tie Gary Ridgway to one of the scenes. But it was an excruciatingly slow process. Then, in the early spring of 2003, the police finally got another break on the evidence. Tests of materials taken from two other victims, Debbie Estes, muffin to her family, and Wendy Cofield, the first victim found in the Green River in July of 1982, showed faint traces of a particular kind of paint globule, otherwise found only at the Kenworth plant. 
Based on the Estes and Cofield evidence, the authorities decided to add victim Dub Bonner to the list of charged murders as well, bringing the total to seven. But beyond that, there simply wasn't enough evidence to link Gary Ridgway to all the remaining Green River murders. The evidence of the paint globules first became known on the 27th of March 2003, when prosecutors returned to court to ask that the three new victims be added to the four existing charges. The paint discovery was a setback for the defense. It made it almost impossible to believe that Ridgway's lawyers could convince a jury that Gary Ridgway was not guilty of seven murders, and by implication, the remaining 42 as well. Three days after the three new charges were filed, Prothero visited Gary Ridgway in jail. Until this time, no one from the defense had pressed Ridgway to say what had actually happened. But almost from the outset, Prothero had told Gary Ridgway that the day would come when they would have to have some serious discussions about the evidence. That day had finally arrived, Prothero told Gary Ridgway. Prothero went over all the evidence that the police had, especially the details about the paint, and discussed the likelihood of Ridgway's conviction. Ridgway did not say much, Prothero recalled later, but sat and listened quietly. Prothero later said, and I quote, Up until the point where it was just four victims, our defense was that he had had sex with two or three of the victims, but that was all. He had denied killing anyone. End quote. The defense, Prothero said, thought they would raise reasonable doubt, at least enough doubt to prevent Ridgway from receiving the death penalty. But all that changed with the addition of the three new victims, Cofield, Bonner and Estes. Prothero said in later interviews, and I quote, I outlined the strength of the state's case and the difficulty of getting an impartial jury, end quote. And that was why, on the 31st of March, 2003, Prothero discussed all the evidence against Gary Ridgway and then gently raised the prospect of trying to get a life-saving deal from the prosecutor's office. In truth, both sides had something the other wanted. The prosecutor's office, of course, had Gary Ridgway's life, but the defense had the prospect of being able to provide answers to all the questions that had bothered so many people for so long, including information about the seven victims still missing, that is, assuming that Gary Ridgway could be persuaded to part with it in return for his life. Over the ensuing week, Prothero met with Ridgway once a day, and occasionally with Michelle Shaw, another defense attorney, who had been given the responsibility of a liaison between Gary and his brothers. Ridgway seemed non-committal about the prospects of a deal. Prothero thought that he might be holding back, 
in part to prevent his brothers from abandoning him, as he possibly feared they might if they discovered that he was guilty. The brothers themselves vacillated between wanting to fight the charges and fearing the worst. Then, on the night of Tuesday, the 8th of April, 2003, Ridgway met with his two brothers and sister-in-law at the jail. In a tearful exchange, all three said they loved Gary no matter what he had done, and that they did not want him to die by execution. This time, Gary cried as well. Ridgway finally told Shaw that he was willing to explore the possibility of a negotiated plea. Shaw told him this was a good thing. She said she would tell Prothero, Gruenhagen, Savage, and the others on the defense team of his decision. The defense team met that same night, and again the following morning, the 10th of April. It was decided that Prothero should ask Ridgway what he had to offer in exchange for a life-saving plea bargain. Later that morning, Prothero went to visit Gary by himself. For the first time, he began to speak about the charges. At first, Ridgway did not admit to everything. In this first story, Prothero would recall, Ridgway took responsibility for some of the murders but not all of them, about half, in fact. Ridgway said he had gotten involved in the crimes with another man who had videotaped him having sex with an animal in a barn somewhere out in Kent Valley. After that, Ridgway said, he had been blackmailed into cooperating with the other man. That's how Gary had come to commit half of the murders. Prothero listened patiently, to Ridgway's first description of his involvement in the crimes. He had no way of knowing whether Ridgway was telling him the truth, but since Ridgway was admitting culpability for the first time, Prothero had to take it as real. Prothero later admitted he had thought Gary Ridgway was telling the truth. But the next day, on the 11th of April, Ridgway admitted to Prothero and Shaw that he had not been completely truthful the day before. Prothero thus asked how many he had killed, if not just half. Ridgway admitted that he had committed all of the Green River murders. Every single one of them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener, and as a man, I was, and am, often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations, but never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serialkiller today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killer. In the end, Prosecutor Marling decided to make the deal, not for Ridgeway, but for those whom Ridgeway had caused so much pain, the families of all those who had been killed, the families who still mourned even 20 years later. The evidence collected by the police, Marling knew, could prove who committed seven of the crimes. And while it was true that Ridgway would probably get the death penalty for those seven murders, that would leave at least 42 murders, if not more, officially unsolved. Marling later said of the decision to make a deal the following, and I quote, When I see the face of justice in this case, it is those young women I see. They deserve to have the truth of their fates known to the world. I see each family impacted by these crimes. They deserve to know the truth about the fate of their loved ones, and the families who have endured decades not knowing the whereabouts of their daughters. They deserve to have a proper burial. Finally, the face of justice reflects our whole community. We have all suffered this terrible trauma known as the Green River Murders. We deserve to know the truth. End quote. And so it was that on the 4th of June, 2003, the defense team's proffer of evidence was accepted by the prosecutor's office. In it, Gary Ridgway promised to tell the authorities everything he knew about the Green River murders, including the whereabouts of the seven women still missing. The proffer, extended to the prosecution, said that Gary Ridgway would admit to killing between 47 and 53 women in King County, all of them between July of 1982 and May or June of 1985, uh, that's about the time he married his third wife, that he was unable to recall any of the victims by looking at their photographs, 
but that he could recall the place where and circumstances under which he killed most of them, that about half were killed inside his home, another eleven to fifteen inside his truck, and the others near where their remains had been discovered, and most significantly that he was able to lead the police to places where he had left between ten and fourteen women whose remains had still not been found by the police. The proffer said Ridgway would plead guilty to forty-seven counts of murder and would assist the authorities in trying to resolve all of the unsolved murder cases that he was taking the blame for. In return, the authorities agreed to recommend that Gary Ridgway be sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison without the possibility of parole. But if Ridgway denied a murder that the authorities could otherwise prove he committed, there would be no bar to the state trying him for that crime and obtaining the death penalty. This was, of course, a powerful inducement for Gary Ridgway to tell everything. Ridgway was unable to tell the detectives when he had killed his first victim, but admitted that it might have occurred in the 1970s, well before the Green River crimes first came to light. His hazy recollection of this was troubling, in part because almost all such serial killers recall their first crime with peculiar vividness. However, given the fact that Ridgway was divorced from his first wife in 1970 and married his second in 1973, the chances are that the crime took place somewhere in that time frame. By the early 1980s, however, when the Green River crimes began, Ridgway had already made up his mind to murder when he went out quote-unquote patrolling. Despite the FBI's initial profile, in which it was believed that the killer did not start out any particular day or night with murder in mind, Gary Ridgway said that when he hit the road looking for victims, he intended to kill if he could get away with it. Eventually, Ridgway said, the progression took on an impetus of his own. The murdering became his quote-unquote career, as he put it to the detectives, the thing he did best. It was, in fact, the way that Ridgway eventually came to see himself, as the Green River Killer, a person unique. In this, Ridgway also fit the FBI's predicted pattern, a man with a menial job who spent virtually all of his free time thinking about his crimes, in fact rehearsing them in his mind over and over again to achieve perfection. Once he had targeted a woman for killing, Ridgway said, any sort of failure to induce her to go with him enraged him. He said of his state of mind at the time, and I quote, I'm really mad at some of them, because I didn't get a chance to pick them up. They want too much. The pimp was following me or something, and so I'm... I just lost one. The next one. I'm gonna do everything I can to sweet-talk her. I'm gonna talk her into getting her out of the area so I can 
kill the bitch. Kill the first one I didn't get a chance to kill today. I'm going to kill this one and I'm going to strangle her head, strangle her neck so it, it breaks. End quote. Again, dear listener, I would like to remind you of the fact that strangulation is one of the most painful ways to die there is. And the way Ridgeway did it, by often using so much force that the trachea broke, the victims would choke on their own blood, as well as experiencing the extreme pain suffered by lack of oxygen. A number of the chokings were protracted affairs, Ridgeway said, and on at least one occasion a victim managed to get loose and run for the door before he was able to catch her. Another victim, Marie Malvar, was able to scratch one of his forearms bloody in the struggle. Gary poured battery acid over his forearm to obliterate the true nature of the deep scratches. Still other victims pleaded for their lives, Ridgway said, which only seemed to turn him on more. He often used his legs to help pin the victim to the floor. Ridgway said, and I quote, Choking is what I did, and I was pretty good at it. End quote. Once he had killed, Ridgway said, he was left with the problem of disposing of the body. For those he killed in his home, usually in his own bedroom, Gary devised a simple plan. He wrapped the body in a piece of plastic, then uh, toted the wrapped body onto his truck in the dark of night. As predicted, Ridgway found places to dispose of the bodies that were quick and convenient to his house, but also isolated enough to give him a margin of safety. As the pattern also suggested, he tested each cluster with a single victim before returning months later with many more. Ridgway said that the discovery of each of the clusters really upset him, not because he felt he was in danger of arrest, but because outsiders were taking possession of something that belonged to him. Asked what a victim's body meant to him, Ridgway responded, and I quote, She meant, uh, she meant that, uh, a beautiful person that was my property, my, uh, possession. Someone only I knew, and, uh, I missed when they were found, or where I lost them. End quote. On the 18th of December, 2003, King County Superior Court Judge Richard Jones sentenced Ridgway to 48 life sentences with no possibility of parole and one life sentence to be served consecutively. He was also sentenced to an additional 10 years for tampering with the evidence for each of the 48 victims, adding 480 years to his 48 life sentences. Ridgway led prosecutors to three bodies in 2003. On the 16th of August of that year, the remains of a 16-year-old girl found near Enumclaw, Washington, 12 meters from State Route 410, were pronounced as belonging to Pammy Annette Avent, who had been believed to be a victim of the Green River Killer. The remains 
of Marie Malvar and April Buttram were found in September 2003. On the 23rd of November 2005, the Associated Press reported that a weekend hiker found the skull of one of the 48 women Ridgway admitted murdering in his 2000 plea bargain with the King County prosecutors. The skull of another victim, Tracy Winston, who was 19 when she disappeared from Northgate Mall on the 12th of September 1983, was found on the 20th of November 2005 by a man hiking in a wooded area near Highway 18 near Issaquah, southeast of Seattle. In one taped interview, Ridgway initially told investigators that he was responsible for the deaths of 65 women. In another taped interview with Reichert on the 31st of December 2003, Ridgway claimed to have murdered 71 victims and confessed to having sex with them before killing them, a detail which he did not reveal until after his sentencing. In his confession, he acknowledged that he targeted prostitutes because they were easy to pick up, and that he hated most of them. He confessed that he had sex with his victims' bodies after he murdered them, but claimed he began burying the later victims so that he could resist the urge to commit a necrophilia. Ridgway later said that murdering young women was his quote-unquote career. Today, Gary Ridgway is 72 years old and is presently held at Washington State Penitentiary. He remains isolated in a single cell in restrictive housing as he would run an extreme risk of being targeted by other inmates if he would ever be let out in the general prison population. In order to honor the victims of Ridgway's crimes, I will now read out all of the names of his known victims. Bear in mind that there might be more than those I list here that authorities simply are not aware of, since Ridgway has not told of them. Wendy Lee Cofield, 16 years old. Disappeared the 8th of July, 1982. Giselle Ann Lovorn, 19 years old. Disappeared the 17th of July, 1982. Deborah Lynn Bonner, 23 years old. Disappeared the 25th of July, 1982. Marsha Faye Chapman, 31 years old. Disappeared the 1st of August, 1982. Opal Charmaine Mills, 16 years old. Disappeared the 12th of August, 1982. Terry Renee Milligan, 16 years old. Disappeared the 29th of August, 1982. Mary Bridget Meehan, 18 years old. Disappeared the 15th of September, 1982. Deborah Lorraine Estes, 15 years old. Disappeared the 20th of September, 1982. Linda Jane Rule, 16 years old. Disappeared the 26th of September, 1982. Denise Darcel Bush, 23 years old, disappeared the 8th of October, 1982. Shonda Leah Summers, 
16 years old, disappeared the 9th of October, 1982. Shirley Marie Sherrill, 18 years old, disappeared the 22nd of October, 1982. Colleen Renee Brockman, 15 years old, disappeared the 24th of December, 1982. Alma Ann Smith, 18 years old, disappeared the 3rd of March, 1983. Dolores Laverne Williams, 17 years old, disappeared the 14th of March, 1983. Gail Lynn Matthews, 23 years old, disappeared the 22nd of April, 1983. Andrea M. Childers, 19 years old, disappeared the 14th of April, 1983. Sandra K. Gabbard, 17 years old, disappeared the 17th of April, 1983. Kimi Kai Pitsor, 16 years old, disappeared the 16th of April, 1983. Marie M. Malvar, 18 years old, disappeared the 30th of April, 1983. Carol Ann Christensen, 21 years old, disappeared the 4th of May, 1983. Martina Teresa Othorli, 18 years old, disappeared the 22nd of May, 1983. Cheryl Lee Wims, 18 years old, disappeared the 23rd of May, 1983. Yvonne Shelley Antorch, 19 years old, disappeared the 31st of May, 1983. Carrie A. Roy, 15 years old, disappeared the 2nd of June, 1983. Constance Elizabeth Naon, 19 years old, disappeared the 8th of June, 1983. Kelly Marie Ware, 22 years old, disappeared 18th July, 1983. Tina Marie Thompson, 21 years old, Disappeared the 25th of July, 1983. April Dawn Buttram, 16 years old. Disappeared the 23rd of August, 1983. Debbie May Abernathy, 26 years old. Disappeared the 5th of September, 1983. Tracy Ann Winston, 19 years old. Disappeared the 12th of September, 1983. Maureen Sue Feeney, 19 years old, disappeared the 28th of September, 1983. Mary Sue Bello, 25 years old, disappeared the 11th of October, 1983. Pammy Avent, 15 years old, disappeared the 26th of October, 1983. Delise Louise Plager, 22 years old, disappeared the 30th of October, 1983. Kimberly L. Nelson, 21 years old, disappeared the 1st of November, 1983. Lisa Yates, 19 years old, disappeared the 23rd of December, 1983. Mary Exeta West, 16 years old, disappeared the 6th of February, 1984. Cindy Ann Smith, 17 years old, disappeared the 21st of March, 1984. Patricia Michelle Barjak, 19 years old, disappeared the 17th of October, 1986. Roberta Joseph Hayes, 21 years old, disappeared the 7th of February, 1987.
Martha Reeves, 36 years old, disappeared the 5th of March, 1990. Patricia Yellowrobe, 38 years old, disappeared in January, 1998. Then we have a few women who we simply do not know who are. Unidentified white female, aged 12 to 17, died prior to May 1983. Unidentified white female, aged 17 to 19 years old, died unknown, found the 22nd of April 1985. Unidentified black female, aged 18 to 27, disappeared between 1982 and 1984. Unidentified white female, aged 14 to 18, disappeared somewhere between December 1980 to January 1984. The following are victims Ridgway is suspected of, but not convicted of. Amina Agishev, 35 years old, disappeared the 7th of July 1982. Casey Ann Lee Woods, 16 years old, Disappeared the 28th of August, 1982. Tammy Liles, 16 years old. Disappeared the 9th of June, 1983. Kelly K. McGuinness, 18 years old. Disappeared the 28th of June, 1983. Angela Marie Gerdner, 16 years old. Disappeared in July, 1983. Patricia Osborne, aged 19. Disappeared in October 1983. Christy Lynn Vorak, aged 13. Disappeared the 31st of October 1982. Patricia Anne LeBlanc, 15 years old. Disappeared the 12th of August 1983. Rose Marie Curran, 16 years old. Disappeared the 26th of August, 1987. Darcy Ward, 16 years old. Disappeared the 24th of April, 1990. Cora McGurk, 22 years old. Disappeared the 12th of July, 1991. May they all rest in peace. And so it is that we come to the end of the tale of the Green River Killer. Next episode will feature a fresh, new serial killer expose. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. Finally, I wish to thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts facebook.com slash the sk podcast or by posting on the subreddit the sk podcast thank you good night good luck